Let's, uh, now let's open up our Bibles to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, um, in your Bible, will be there today. The Beatitudes is where we're going to look at today. As you're getting there, let me ask you a question. might seem a little bit weird um, off the cuff, but let me ask you something. Are you happy this morning? Some say yeah. Some say, oh yeah, things are going great right now. Ask me again in 30 minutes. Ask me again in an hour. If you get up out of the sermon on time, maybe I'll continue to be happy. If you go long, maybe not. Uh, you, you, you might have this momentary thing. You're like, sure, everything's going great right now, right? Others are saying, no, not really. Like I would be happy if, uh, if my spouse really started to change. If they get their stuff together and begin to love me like I deserve to be loved, then I'd be happy. If my kids would just obey and do the right thing. If my parents weren't so mean to me, <laughs> maybe if I had some, had some money in my pocket, some Biden bucks, maybe when them Biden bucks come in, I'll be okay, a little happy then. Right, get that next Timmy check, I'll be good. If I get the raise, if I get a new career, if I finally get that home I've been looking at, I drive by every day and I wanna live there, I wanna make it to there. Uh, or if I got this relationship, I got this boyfriend or this girlfriend, uh, maybe if, maybe if my church got their stuff together, maybe if they started playing songs I like, maybe if the preacher was better, I'd be happy, right? The point is, is I'd be happy if this situation happened or if I had this thing over and over again. And what I did this week as I was talking about happiness and do some research, I found out through Google that researchers, um, even human psychologists say that all of those things, physical, uh, the temporal, the material, emotional, circumstantial, all of those things will never bring lasting happiness, only short-term fulfillment, all right? Uh, it's like all of those things, when you put your happiness in those things, they fade like the morning fog. I Google that. You can Google that too. Uh, don't do it right now because I'm preaching, but later this week, go back and look at that. But I thought that was interesting they had all of these reasons or, or ways that they knew we would never be happy. But what they didn't have was a solution for how we can be happy. All the things and ways we know it's not this, but they had no solutions for us and how to be happy. Now, I'll tell you this. In my first few years of pastoring here at the church, um, I preached, we, I think we preached as, even as a church, We'd get up and say, God is not concerned with your happiness, only your holiness. I was dead wrong, dead, dead wrong. God is absolutely, ferociously interested in my happiness. In fact, I believe that God has hardwired our hearts. He has put the pursuit of happiness inside of all of us. He wrote it on our hearts. We're questing for it. And what we're going to see today in these opening verses of the Beatitudes is where true biblical happiness is absolutely found. It is in these Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes, of course, have been traditionally uh, called the Beatitudes or the beautiful attitudes of those who follow Jesus Christ. That's a term we use for that. So as we see this today, all eight Beatitudes begin with the word blessed. We're blessed. Now, that word does not mean materialistic prosperity. 
It doesn't mean favorable circumstances. It doesn't mean riches and wealth and all of these physical circumstantial things. It doesn't mean that. Blessed is a biblical happiness. The word translated in the original language, it's happiness. Blessed means happy in God. Blessed, every time we're going to hear that today, it means happy in God. It's someone, the blessed man, the blessed woman, it's someone who's so happy in God that their life is absolutely flourishing. It's good. It's rich. It's purposeful. And then when all of these other situational and circumstantial happinesses fail, our happiness in God never fails. It's a root in the middle of all of those things. We're just so happy in God. And then what happens when someone is happy in God, then they can be happy in their horizontal relationships with one another. The first four Beatitudes are are specifically in our relationship with God, and the last four are in our relationships with one another. So being blessed is being happy in God. It's the idea of Christian hedonism. You might have heard that term before. Uh, But the idea of Christian hedonism is is this idea that God's chief concern, his glory, that's his chief concern, his glory and our happiness are one and the same. That we are most satisfied, when we are most satisfied and most happy in God, then God is most glorified. Listen to what a Puritan preacher Thomas Brooks said about this. God is the author of all true happiness. He is the donor of all true happiness. He that hath him for his God, for his portion, is the only happy man in the world. So if you're here today and you long quest for happiness, and I think we all do, I want to tell you that happiness is the way of Christ today. Happiness is the way of Christ. Now, there's another meaning for this word blessed as well. It doesn't just mean us being happy in God. It also means God being happy with us. The word blessed here also serves as the approval of God. So as we practice these beatitudes, we're going to see these beatitudes, when we do practice them, we receive the smile of God, or as Max Lucado said, the applause of heaven. That is what we are going to see with the idea of being blessed. Those two things. Every time I read these Beatitudes today, blessed means happy in God and approved by God. All right? So we're going to read these things together. There's eight of them. And as as we read through them, they are not profound meaning that they can, they can easily be glossed over, almost like going to your grandmother's house and seeing a, a picture on the wall of a verse. And just, you just kind of uh, glance over it, and that sounds really nice, and you just kind of glaze over it, right? I think there's a great danger in us doing that with the Beatitudes. Oh, that sounds nice. That's great. Man, there's a great, great danger in that. I think if we would do this today as a church, if we would pause... And if we would allow allow Christ's words to serve as an x-ray to us, I think what will happen is is we will uh, be 
revealed or exposed for either being a believer of Jesus, because these are the marks, the, the beautiful attitudes of a follower of Jesus, but it will also, for the believer, it will expose and reveal any mediocrity in our walk. It will expose unauthenticity in our walk with Jesus Christ. So it's a spiritual surgery. And I think, it, I think if we would give ourselves over to it, then I think we would actually begin to experience the happiness that God has for us. All right? So as we go through these Beatitudes, another thing I want you to keep in mind too is they are absolutely counterintuitive to culture and counterintuitive to our nature. They are the complete opposite of the way we are told to live in this world. That's why for you and me, it's so hard to do them, right? And, and, and when it's hard to do them and we don't do them, then we miss out on the blessing that is found in them, all right? So let's labor through these. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read, I'm gonna read all of them. We're gonna come back and walk through each one together, all right? They all build on one another. So let's start with verse three. These may, this scripture may be up, it may not, because I didn't tell him I was going to do this, but here we go. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be son, called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, so let's look at these together. First one out of the gate. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. Um, you can subtitle this section or this beatitude the riches of poverty. The riches of poverty. This first beatitude, um, I would call this the bedrock of the beatitudes, meaning all other seven are built and stand on top of this first one. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who are the poor. And spirit. Remember, it's blessed, happy, and approved by God are the ones who are poor in spirit. The ones who are poor in spirit are not people who need a little bit of spiritual assistance. It's not that they are kind of like, well, I'm pretty religious, I'm pretty spiritual, I just need a little help from Jesus. Not those people. The poor in spirit are those who know that they are spiritually bankrupt before a holy God. They know, the poor in spirit, that they have no spiritual resources, power, or ability to please God or adhere to any of his commands. They are sin-sick, broke beggars, begging for the mercy of God that he would not pour out their wrath, his wrath on them. That is who the poor in spirit are. John Wesley says this about the poor in spirit. He has a deep sense of loathsome leprosy of sin 
which he brought with him from his mother's womb, which overspreads his whole soul and totally corrupts the person. Wesley is reminding us that all of us, because of our sin, we were born into the world. Adam imputed or inherited sin from Adam. That's what we have. We are born, all of us, spiritually broke, spiritually bankrupt before a holy God. We have no credit. And there's absolutely nothing that we can do to earn credit with God. No matter how many times we come to church, no matter how many 20s you throw in the plate on the way out, no matter how many times you fill out a decision card, no matter how many times you pray the sinner's prayer over and over and over again, no matter how many times you get baptized in a tub, you've been three, three times baptized, four times. It doesn't matter how many times you, you are a good person and do humanitarian deeds and you say you're yes sirs and you're no ma'ams. And you go do, you serve people out in the community and you come to church and you become a member of the church and you sign the covenant and, and you serve and you, like, there's nothing that you and I can do to earn credit with God. Our credit score is absolutely zero. That is who the poor in spirit are. They know that. And no one will enter the kingdom of God without understanding that they are poor in spirit. doesn't matter if you grew up in church or if you grew up in the streets. This is the great leveler of all of humanity, poor in spirit. You could say it like this. The first link between your soul and God is not your goodness, but your badness. You try to come to God with anything in your hands except for your sin, you do not inherit the kingdom of God. Nothing makes you right with God. And here's the promise, of course, for those who are poor in spirit, who would agree with God they are poor in spirit, they inherit what? The kingdom of heaven. They get the kingdom of heaven if they're poor in spirit. Now, this is important because context here. You remember, as Jesus is preaching here, there's a culture. The Pharisees thought that they inherited the kingdom of heaven because of their pious nature, that they were better than all of the other Jews, all of the Gentiles, that they were just good people, and they thought that they inherited the kingdom of God because they were good and everybody else was not. And, of course, Jesus comes in and begins to do ministry and turns that on its head upside down. He says, no, no, it's not the good people it's those who admit they're poor in spirit. It's the poor prostitute. It's the thief. It's the criminal. It's the tax collector, right? It's those people that inherit the kingdom of God. Not good people. And think about 2,000 years later. Has our culture really changed that much? If I were to either ask maybe some of you today, why do you think you get the kingdom of heaven? Or if I went outside in the world and did an interview and Hey, why do you think you're going to heaven? You know what people are going to say? Because I'm a good person. They're trying to offer their good to a holy God. And they will never see the kingdom of heaven. Only those 
who are poor in spirit inherit the kingdom of God. I told you, remember, these are counter-cultural, right? This is not the way of the world. To admit that you're poor in spirit, and then you get it? Go low, then you get high? That's not the way it goes. Listen to what Spurgeon said about this idea. Poverty of spirit is the antithesis of the proud, selfish, and self-sufficiency of today's world. The world has its own beatitudes or ideas of what it means to be blessed. Blessed is the man who's self-confident. Blessed is the man who's strong. Blessed is the man who has power, popularity, and is a rich. To these blessed men, the God of self is their inferno. Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you ever filed for spiritual bankruptcy? Have you ever gotten so low, so poor in spirit, and you knew that there was nothing good in you, nothing you could do by your own power, your own merit, your own credit to earn the favor of God, and you cried out, Jesus, save me. Have you ever filed for spiritual bankruptcy? Because let me tell you what happens when you do that. You inherit the kingdom of heaven. When you confess that, that you are a sinner who needs a savior in Jesus, here's what happens. All of Jesus' credit, his perfection, his righteousness, his perfect credit score is then imputed onto you. You have the approval of God immediately and eternally in Christ Jesus. The righteousness of Jesus. You get the credit, right? And it's forever and ever. It's imperishable. Oh, the riches of poverty. You see why it's the riches of poverty now? Those who are spiritually impoverished admit their bankruptcy, inherit the kingdom of God, and are rich forever. Have you filed? I pray today. Let me just pause there. I normally do this gospel thing at the end because that's the good news of the gospel. Those who admit that they're poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt, inherit the kingdom of God. Have you ever done that? If you have not, that's what those cards are for. You can check a box, come give me that, speak with me on the way out. That may call you to action, right? And I pray that God shows you that today and that you would inherit the riches of poverty. Here's the second one. They all build upon one another. The second one is, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You can translate this as, blessed are Let's see, let me make sure I say this right. Blessed are those, happy are the unhappy. Happy are the unhappy. Now, what kind of mourning is Jesus talking about here? He's not talking about mourning over the loss of loved ones. He's not talking about the the mourning of hardships in our life. Mourning of rebelling uh, uh, children, mourning that, grieving the world. Like looking at the world, he's not talking about mourning over those things. He's not talking about mourning over other people's sin or the sins of the world. He's talking about mourning and the sorrow of self-sin. Grieving our own sin. And when we grieve and mourn over our own sin, he says we will be happy. That we will be happy in God And approved by God when we mourn over our own sin. Paul called that godly grief. I don't know if you know the difference between godly grief and 
worldly grief, but that's what Paul called this idea that those who mourn their sin, they've experienced this disaster of disobedience in their life, and they have seen their own sin ruin and cause pain and hardship in their life. And he's telling us to grieve and mourn over our own sin. And you see how countercultural that is right now? The world does not want you to do that. That's self-hatred when you do that. You'll feel really bad about yourself if you do that. Don't do that. i got to build you up. Self-love. Let me affirm you. You're really not that bad. right? You need some self-esteem. Go down there and get you a Joel Osteen book and really start to live in that. That's what the world tells you to do. Don't mourn over your sin because it's not good for your soul. And Jesus says the antithesis of that. No, he says you need to mourn over your own sin. You need to feel the guilt, the shame, the power of conviction and bring you really, really low. But the good news is this. He doesn't leave you down there loathing and guilt and shame. He says those who do that will be what? Comforted. How are you comforted? By remembering the blood of Jesus who covered all of the multitude of sins that we have. But that's the proper posture, that we grieve over our own sin and that we are comforted by the cross, the good news of the gospel. I think that's hard for us if we're being um, honest here. I think we don't experience the happiness that is found in grieving our own sin. We miss out on these things. And here's, I think, a couple of reasons why we do it. We trivialize our sin. We minimize it. Uh, we, we, we hold hands with sin. We train sin. We coddle sin. Or we say things like, ah, it's just a little sin. Listen, there's no such thing as a little sin because there is no such thing as a little God. Every single act of disobedience is treason against our creator. And if we would begin to mourn and look at our own sin that way, oh, you want to talk about some victory in your sin. You'll have great victory and great comfort. I think another reason why this is hard for us to do, because I think we're really, really good at pointing out the sin around us those in front of us, those behind us, and those beside us, and we fail to look at the sin inside of us. You know what I'm talking about? Fault finders? Really, really good at exposing everybody else's problems. You, you read the Bible, and you're like, oh, I know who needs to hear this. He's talking about them. I've got to go tell them. Right? They listen to sermons on Sunday. They're, hey, you should really listen to this. Are you getting this? So much easier to find the flaws in everybody else. But if we would do the hard work and remember, when we get our Bibles out, and as we walk through our life as followers of Christ, the greatest problem that you're going to have in this world is not outside of you. It's inside of you. It's called sin. That is something that will confront us every single day. You will have to understand that. You'll have to acknowledge it. you have to fight it. You'll have to confess that. you have to repent that. And then and then only will you begin to get comforted 
by mourning over your sin. Happy and approved by God are the ones who mourn their own sin. Uh, Something you can do here, if you don't mourn your sin and you don't grieve over your own sin, what do you do? Oh, you ask the Lord to heap a pile of conviction on you through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what you do. You, you beg God, God, give me conviction. Give me your grace, right? You ask the giver of those things, and I pray that you begin to do that. If you don't grieve it, God, make me weep over my own sin. Because when you start to weep over your own sin, then you can fight your sin, then you can lead to repentance, and then that leads to comfort of God. Let me go to the next one. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. The meek are the humble, quiet-spirited, the gentle, self-sacrificial people who walk through the earth. It seems as if they are being pushed out of the world, that they have no inheritance, no portion of the world, but it says here that the meek will inherit the world. See how countercultural this is again. Um, that's not the way of the world. Look at the, the context here. It's very important that we remember who he's talking to and the point here. Uh, the Jews deeply desired uh, to be freed from the oppression of Rome. And so they wanted a warrior Jesus to put the sword to the throat of Rome. Take it back by force, courage, strength, right? That's the way they wanted to. They were called zealots. And the zealots wanted to take the kingdom of God by force, sword, power. And then we understand that as Jesus comes in and he begins to teach that that's not the way. Peter, put your sword away, man. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. My kingdom will not be ushered in by force. It will be ushered in by meekness gentleness, self-sacrifice. This is the way into the kingdom of God. And as I said, this is not the way of the world. So as you and I walk through this world, we are meek, gentle, lowly, self-sacrificial, and it's going to seem that we're losing, being pushed out of the world into the margins, but those who are faithful to the end, they will inherit the world. Be meek. Be happy and be God approved. Next one. The, the way they build on each other, um, you have to see. So if we're saved, poor in spirit, then we have contrition or conviction. Then we are meek. We're measuring up. Then now what that should happen is that the desires of our heart will become different than the world. And this is the next one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Have you ever fasted for more than a day? I, I think probably everybody in here, maybe not everybody, have fasted for more than a day. A few years ago, LifePoint, we did a three-day fast. And, um, and uh, me and my family walked through that. Maybe some of you did that as well. And um, let me tell you what. By day three, forwards were hungry. Okay? And I mean hungry. I don't just mean, oh, I'm hungry. No, I mean hungry. 
right? And so we, had, we were all dead set on breaking that fast at what I believe is the best pizza place ever, Sir Pizza. I'll die on that hill, all right? Don't, don't go to war with me. But anyway, we're preparing uh, for this fast. We're going to break this fast. And I mean, church that day, there wasn't a lot of hanging out after. A lot, not a lot of fellowshipping that day, right? That wasn't just me. That was everybody. He all just like, let's go. Uh, so we're out there. And I'm telling you what, sparks are flying from a plate. You don't get in the way. I'm breaking the fast here. And I'm eating. We're gorging and all those things. And let me tell you what, no one questioned my hunger that day. I mean, it wasn't like, well, I don't know if that guy's hungry or not. They're like, God's guy's hungry. Watch out, right? This is the same kind of zeal, passion, and hunger that Jesus is talking about here. That we should hunger and thirst for righteousness the same way we hunger and thirst for our favorite foods. Really, greater than our foods. But you see the, the comparison here, right? And hey, we hunger for our favorite foods, right? Everybody you know what I'm talking about. There's a passion, there's a zeal, we love it, we enjoy it. But the question is, is, do we thirst and hunger for righteousness like that? Do we get satisfaction and joy and pleasure out of eating and drinking righteousness the same way that we do food? Now, everybody hungers and everybody thirsts. People of the world look for things to try to satisfy that appetite. Food, they look for food. Maybe food will do that thing for me, right? We see people abusing food all the time. Sex, money, relationships. There's this inherent appetite inside of us and we just want to feed it so it will be satisfied. A boyfriend, a girlfriend, money, job, career, like I said, all those things. We try to fill this appetite. Only the problem is it never satisfies the appetite. It does for a minute like my Sir Pizza, right? But then that goes away. And then you're left hungry again, again, and again. Jesus is saying those who hunger for righteousness will always be satisfied. The righteousness he's talking about here is a personal righteousness. He's not talking about positional righteousness. Positional righteousness is the righteousness that God imputes upon you when you trust in Jesus. He's talking about personal righteousness. When you and me who have been saved by Jesus, start to walk in the commands of God, the good commands of God that are meant for our good, practicing righteousness, committing to the gathering on Sunday, praying as a family, reading scripture, devotions, life groups, Bible studies, worshiping, giving, serving, all of the habits of holiness. That is how we hunger and show that we're hungry and we thirst for righteousness. So just a quick question as reflection here. How is your appetite? What is your appetite for? What are your taste buds for? What does it for you? If it's all of those other things and you're looking for satisfaction of your appetite through relationships, money, a job, career, friends, fame, fortune, popularity, approval of others, whatever it is, you will never be satisfied. Man, feed Drink, eat off of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and you will always be satisfied. Here's the next one. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So happy, blessed, approved by God are those who extend 
mercy because they will receive mercy. Mercy is undeserved, unmerited favor on someone who's suffering. Someone who doesn't deserve it. They're suffering. It's their own fault. They're doing it. And they really don't deserve mercy. But mercy is extending mercy to them. Favor, even even though they don't deserve it. Where in the world have we seen something like that before? Where? God, us, sin, suffering, wicked, rebellion. We don't deserve the mercy of God. We deserve death forever and ever. And what was God's posture towards us? Did he leave us where we are? No, he chased us. He pursued us with his great mercy through Jesus Christ. He gave us what we don't deserve, salvation and life in Christ. And he chases us all of our days with mercy and goodness still. So those who understand that, and they've been brought really, really low, poverty in spirit, that they know they receive the mercy of God. So then now they look out horizontally and they say, okay, well, I have to extend mercy. Like you can't just love to be a recipient of mercy and then not extend it to other people. We can't look around at people and be like, oh, they're, they're getting exactly what they deserve. They deserve to suffer. Look what they've done. Leave them alone, right? No, we have to move towards them. And as we extend mercy to them, we also will receive the mercy of God. We still need his mercy, by the way. Let's go to the next one. Blessed are there's really three here. There's the blessed are the pure in heart, the peacemaker, and the persecuted. So let's look at these three Ps here. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If you are someone who is pure in heart, what does that mean? It means you are someone who detests falsehood. You hate hypocrisy. You are who you say that you are. The real you is the real you. You are not double-minded. You do not limp between two opinions. There is not an Instagram you and then a real you, right? You have some people even have two Instagram accounts because they're trying to fake it and hide their real them for themselves. And let me tell you what, if you're trying to fake it to people around you, you're trying to fake it before God too. Only those who are pure in heart are who they say that they are. They know who they are. They know who God says that they are. It doesn't mean they're perfect, but they're not in the mushy middle. They don't wear a mask. They're the same person at church that they are at home in secret. These are the pure in heart, and their motives are pure. They are people of integrity, and people who do that. We're told here that they will see God. What does that mean? Pure in heart, see God. When you're walking in authenticity in your walk with Jesus, not just playing religious games, going to church, when you're doing it real, integrity, you are who you are, you're pursuing honesty, morality, all these things, when you're chasing and hungering for righteousness, then what happens is you see God a lot more clearly. You see him. That's what he's saying here. And that when we don't walk in purity of heart, when we don't walk in authenticity, we live double lives, 
We don't see God that well. It's all foggy, right? But if we would walk in the pureness of heart, we will see God. And the more you see God, I promise you, the more happy in God that you will be. Let's keep going. Next one is, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So happy in God again, approved by God, are peacemakers. Okay? Now, a couple of things. We are not supposed to be troublemakers as followers of Christ. We are to live peaceably with all people, if possible, is what Paul tells us. So we're not supposed to be troublemakers. So here's a pause already. If you're a follower of Jesus, do people call you a troublemaker? Do you like to get in the middle of things? Do you love it when there's conflict and you're like, oh, this is good. Tell me all about it. Oh, they deserve what they're getting, right? Do you get in the middle of it and cause trouble? If you do and you relish and enjoy drama, something wrong with your heart. The people of God are peacemakers. Now, when we see conflict, and if you, if you do church and you're really a part of church, you're going to see conflict. So I want to make sure that's known. If, you don't, if you're not experiencing any conflict ever, you're really probably not a part of the church. You just kind of come here on Sunday. Because the prop, when you start to come and you be a part of something, that this becomes your family and everyone knows everyone's family has conflict, right? Church is no different. So how are we to respond to conflict in the church? Being a peacemaker does not mean we do this. It's not of my business. I'm not going to engage that. It's not my problem. That's not what we do. We, the mature follower of Christ, knows he's a peacemaker or she's a peacemaker, and they step into the situation to be a minister of reconciliation. You ever seen somebody do that before? And they just like, they're just like, we're not doing this. Let's go. Let's, let's, let's make peace right now. This is not good. And they step up and we just kind of, we look back and say, they're wise, right? And they do it in a loving and truthful way. So church, if you, if you have conflict in this church with anyone, how are you responding to it? Are you talking about them? You marveling over the conflict or are you stepping up and saying, I'm going to be a peacemaker and I'm going to lovingly step into this situation. Church, be a peacemaker in this place. Now let's go to the next one. Because we have to recognize that peace is not always a possibility with all people, right? We know that. Paul told us that. But look here in the last two. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for, they, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed, happy in God, approved by God are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, because of their faith. You just think about that for a minute. 
you will never, ever hear that from a prosperity preacher. You're, you're never going to hear it. You're going to hear, blessed is the man who has a jet, has nice suits, cars, a lot of cash, healthy, wealthy. That's what you're going to hear from them. They would never, ever, ever preach this passage. And it's not just that we tolerate that. He's actually telling us that we'll be happy in God when we are persecuted. That when others revile us, that will actually increase our happiness in God. God smiles upon those who are faithful. And you have to remember throughout history, God's people have been persecuted for their faith since Cain and Abel. All throughout the Old Testament. The prophets of old. New Testament disciples. All persecuted, reviled for what they believe in following Jesus. And you and I today, we already experienced this. We've talked about this a lot at our church. As we stand firm on the word of God, on things like the sanctity of human life, how God creates genders and he decides that in the womb. We have the celebration of sexual morality that happens in the world. And we start to take a stand on the word of God. We're going to get the accusations. We're going to be reviled. People are going to say we're haters, closed-minded, bigots, old-fashioned Bible. They're also going to accuse us of not being loving. And you better get ready for it because this is where people will buckle. Oh, you don't love me because you're telling me something in the Bible. No, I am telling you I do love you. That's why I'm telling you what the Bible says. Because your way is not the way, and your way is pain and suffering and hardship. This way is not just the right way, it's the good way for you to flourish in your life. So that's my heart, that should be your heart, but let me tell you what, you got to be ready. Because that's what they'll say, you don't love me because you don't agree with me. We will be persecuted, church. But the beauty... The beauty of the reward here, of course, again, is the kingdom of heaven is ours. So although in this life, you may not be popular, you may not be cool, you may not be trending, you might get reviled and have accusations hurled at you. In the kingdom of heaven, which is, oh, eternally longer than our short little life on the earth, right? The reward will be in heaven. No one will mock you in the kingdom of God. No one will say that you are closed-minded. You will be rewarded for your faithfulness to the truth of God's word. Now, let me close this by saying a couple of things. Last week, we talked about how the Sermon on the Mount and these Beatitudes, even today, these are not God's chore list that he writes up for us in order for us to earn the favor of God. That's not what this is. These things, these beautiful attitudes, are the marks of a born-again Christian whose hard heart has been melted by the grace of the gospel. And so they live these things out. These are not the way to salvation, but these are the way to live in light of the salvation that we have received. And Jesus is very, very serious 
about us walking in these Beatitudes. Not just studying them, not just understanding them, not just adoring them and just looking at them. Oh, that's a nice little thing, yeah. No, he's deadly serious about us obeying these Beatitudes. In the 1800s, there was a man who was a wealthy, wealthy businessman in Boston. He was a very outwardly religious man, so he was a church man. But really, his character, he was known uh, by his immorality, his hypocrisy, his cruel business practices. Uh, Man, his life was nothing like his external religious nature. And um, he was a friend of Mark Twain's. And um, he would often tell Mark Twain that he longed for the day to go to Israel to do a pilgrimage to go to the mountain where Jesus preached the Beatitudes. Oh, I can't wait to go there, he told Twain. Oh, I can't wait to go to the place where Jesus preached the Beatitudes. Oh, it's going to be great. What do you think, Mark? Mark said in his quick wit way, he said, hey, I've got a better idea. Why don't you stay here in Boston and obey them? Church, these Beatitudes are not meant to be studied. They aren't meant to be adored, marveled, appreciated, glossed over, or experienced. They are meant to be obeyed. Where in your life, if you hold up the mirror of the Beatitudes, what does the mirror reveal in you? When you align your life up to practice the Beatitudes, listen, it's not just so that God will be pleased with you, although he is, This is where your happiness is absolutely found. And I want that for you. I want your good, your joy, flourishing life, and it will be found in how quickly you and I can submit ourselves to obeying the Beatitudes. So I pray that you do the work, the x-ray, the spiritual surgery, the looking in the mirror, and that the Lord would just bless you with great abundance and flourish with happiness that's found in these Beatitudes. Let me pray for us today. Father, we love you. And you have shown us, you have revealed to us the mystery of happiness in the world. You, as I said, Father, you imprinted it on our hearts, the pursuit of happiness, and it's not a bad pursuit. But you have revealed the authentic, true, biblical way to happiness, and it's through Jesus. It's through Jesus Christ being poor in spirit, saved by Jesus, and then walking in these beautiful attitudes of your people. Thank you for calling us out as citizens in your kingdom, for telling us how to live, and for God giving us purpose in this world. God, empower this church to move for your glory. We love you. We praise your name in Jesus. Amen.